Good morning. How y'all doing today? Well, okay, not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. Well, it's nice to see everybody. I want to welcome those of you that are tuning in online or out in the atrium, along with all of you that are here, and maybe you're tuning in, listening on demand. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church, which just means I get to really serve all of our volunteers and our staff to hopefully uh, go on this peacemaking journey together. If you are a guest today, you've been around a little bit, and we have never had coffee, never got to hear your story, never got to hear mine, and you'd like to do that, my cell phone number is in the program. It's on the website. And uh, you are welcome to text me, and I would love to do that. Get together, and uh, if you want, you can buy me coffee, you can buy me a whiskey, whichever you prefer. It doesn't matter. So if it's after 12 p.m., we can go the whiskey route. If it's before 12 p.m., we'll go the coffee route, or maybe the whiskey route. Just depends on the kind of week you're having and I'm having. We'll decide that when we get there. So just let me know. I'd love to. Let me ask you a question as we kind of trudge forward today into some deep waters as we are asking the question, what is a vibrant and vital love? Our, our, our emphasis, our peace is worth the emphasis that many of you are participating in, you're giving generously towards, and just kind of our spiritual emphasis for the year is around this idea of a vibrant and vital faith. And we ask the question, what does that look like? What does that mean to have vibrancy in our spirituality? And it starts with a vibrant and vital love. And so we've been each week asking the question, well, what does a vibrant and vital love choose Right? A vibrant and vital love forces us to make certain choices. And so we've been looking at some scripture and we've been looking at the sermons of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as a reminder, in the atrium, we have a collection of his sermons that is available. You can purchase it there. I think it's like $15. If you want that collection and you don't have the 15 bucks, just go say, hey, uh, I'd like a copy of the book. I don't have it. The person behind me is going to pay. And they will. Uh, that's just how we work here. Generosity is one of our values. So if the person behind you doesn't pay, then that's just the spirit of the universe working in them uh, to build generosity. So that's on them, not you, all right? So let me ask you a question as we jump in today to probably what is going to be one of the most difficult ones for us to swallow. Let me ask you this question. What do you hate? What do you hate? Do you hate traffic? Do you hate the chiefs? If you're a parent, do you hate disrespectfulness? Do you hate taxes? What do you hate? Do you hate laziness? I hate laziness. Oh, I hate laziness. That's one of those things that just like, oh, can't do with it. Right, when I say those words, does it bring up an emotion? Can you feel it somewhere inside of your physical body? Like what that means? Well, let me ask you this question. Who do you hate? And don't tell me you don't, all right? Because we can leave that lie outside, right? Who do you hate? Now, there, hate is a spectrum. You might not hate a person enough to wish them like terrible harm and death, right? But think about it. Who in your life would you actually, if you were honest, if there was nobody else in the room that you just said it out loud and it would feel good? I hate so-and-so. Who would that be? Would that be a, an ex-partner? Maybe an ex-spouse? The boss who fired you? The coworker who manipulated you? The neighbor who annoys you? The racist neighbor? The racist person in your life? Who do you hate? Maybe it's not a single person. Maybe you'd say, I've evolved. I don't hate individuals. That's terrible. Who would do that? Maybe it's a category. Do you hate conservatives? Do you hate liberals? Who are those people for you? Perhaps you hate the wealthy. Maybe you hate the poor. Maybe you hate people who grew up in Wyoming. 
I don't. I, I'm just saying, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe you hate people that move here from another state. I felt a little bit of that. I felt a little bit of that from you born and bred Coloradans, you know? Well, what is hate, right? And I said it before, like hate's kind of a spectrum. But hate is often defined as kind of a complex and very intense emotion, right? It's a pretty intense feeling. And a lot of times the feelings that come with hate are things like animosity, hostility, or there's an aversion towards someone or something. There's something inside of us that is like, I gotta get away from it. Like from a psychological perspective, we understand and define hate really as this powerful, it's classified as a negative emotion, which as you'll always hear me say, that doesn't mean we avoid it or pretend it doesn't exist, but it's classified as kind of a negative emotion. And it is accompanied by these thoughts, these beliefs, that lead to behaviors that often try to, we try to distance ourselves, right? So we try to get away from that person, that group, that thing that, that we feel like doesn't like us or that we don't like, the thing that has harmed us. So we move away from it through our aversion, but sometimes we even like try to destroy the target of our hatred. And we see that all over the world. We see that in all the conflicts that are taking place. And hatred really thrives in what I call the second dome of meaning. Right? If you've been around here a little while, you've heard me talk about domes of meaning. I think it's a really beautiful way to talk about healthy spirituality. And I don't have a lot of time to go over it, so if you want to buy me a glass of whiskey, I'm happy to share with you all three domes of meaning in great philosophical and theological detail. But think of it like this. We have my story. That's the first dome of meaning. It's our smallest story, and it's an important story. It gives us our identity. It, gives us, it, it shapes us. So you have my story. And then the second dome of meaning is our stories. And those are the groups that we exist in Crossroads has a story and it's our story and it's a good story and our lives have intersected with it in a whole lot of people's lives. I go everywhere and they say, well, what do you do? I say, I'm the pastor of Crossroads. You know what I hear all the time? Oh, I used to go to church there. <laughs> it's just, that's just the truth. That's what I hear everywhere. But that happened to me in Maine. I went to this church in Maine and then they said, what do you do? I said, I passed this church. Oh, I used to go there. So that's wonderful. Like, it's our story. It's all part of it, right? And then we have our story of faith, right? You might consider yourself part of the Christian tradition. So there's our story. There's the, the Muslim tradition, right? There's an atheist tradition. There's all these traditions. Those are our stories. We have smaller our stories of families, right? We have racial stories, the our stories. There's, there's gender stories that I'll never be able to understand. There's the our story of, of the gender spectrum. There's the our story of male and female and transgender and non-binary. There's all of those stories that exist, right? And what happens if we're not careful, hate enters into our story. And when hate enters into a part of our story, usually from pain from another story that exists, right? Another our story, all of a sudden we think we've got to destroy that story for the sake of our story. Now, the third dome of meaning is the story, right? It is the encompassing of all the stories that exist, mine, ours, and it moves us into a space of oneness and unity, right? And healthy spirituality, healthy religion, no matter where it's found, no matter what zip code, no matter what ethnicity, healthy spirituality ought to be moving us from our stories into the story, even if our stories tell the story a little differently, right? But hate seeps into our stories. And when hate does that, we start looking at the other stories around us and we go, well, I gotta get rid of that story for the sanctity and the sacredness and the purity of my story. Oftentimes this could be called fundamentalism, right? A fundamentalist attitude towards race, a fundamentalist attitude towards religion, towards 
money, towards whatever it might be. It says there's no room for you, and so I have to eliminate you. So hate actually, at the end of the day, dehumanizes people and is the root, right, of homicide. It's the root of genocide, and eventually it will be the root of human extinction. Yet somehow, we as individuals in our stories all across the world, all across uh, the spectrum of societies, we continue to believe that hate is a reasonable response towards those that harm us or who we call our enemies. Yet I don't know that there's a person in the world that wouldn't recognize the death and destruction that leads out of hate. And it's nothing new. Jesus walked around on this earth in a hotly contested little plot of land. I don't know if you know this or not, but it is still a hotly contested little plot of land. Jesus walked around in that area under an occupation like so many do today. And you know what the thought was in his day? In Matthew chapter five, verse 43, Jesus says this, you've heard it said, you shall love your enemy and hate your neighbor. And so some of us are like, that's a good one. Now here's the problem. You can scour anywhere in your Bible, Jewish or Hebrew or, you know, Jewish or Christian Bible, like it, it, that's not in there. <laughs> it's not in there. That had developed in the tradition. It had become kind of a, a, a way of honoring what most people would do, and that is choosing hate, right? So in Jesus' day, just like today, most people would choose hate as an appropriate response to an enemy, right? I have, a, in fact, you can go and you can see how that tradition develops if you really wanted to study it and get into the rabbinic literature. You can actually see where there becomes an obligation under other, other laws and other traditions to actually withhold forgiveness from a person. So this was probably a common saying in Jesus' day. It floated around. Um, it, think of like, uh, fences make good neighbors. You ever heard that one? Yeah, except for a lot of the Colorado fences are like these sprit rails that you could put chicken wire up that really don't help the neighbor situation out, but whatever. Y'all will catch on one day, I don't know. Right, but, but, but that statement was probably the statement that just floated around and it was accepted in society uh, it was accepted socially, religiously. It was just the way it was. So Jesus is coming after something that would have been very common. So he opens up, says, hey, you've heard it said this. And everybody's like, amen, amen, Rabbi Jesus, bring it. Finally, he says something we can like because <laughs> Jesus just got done with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter four. He's like, blessed are the poor. What? Blessed are the brokenhearted, right? All of that. And so he says, it, and he says, but I'm gonna tell you, love your enemies. And I just believe Jesus like, he gets excited about this when he's like, but I'm gonna tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Isn't that awesome? And like all of these people that Jesus is talking to, first of all, are probably the poorest of the poor, oppressed of the oppressed. And for them, Jesus just gives them this completely impractical response to their enemies. What is wrong with this guy? Love my enemies. And these folks had big enemies. You know what I'm talking about? Like capital E enemies. Rome occupying the area. Tax collectors extorting them. The wealthy landholders sucking up more and more land. You had Rome commercializing the sea, taking away from people, just trying to feed their families. I mean, oppressors galore, the big E. But then they also had the normal enemies, the little E's that we all have. The neighbor who just won't be nice. Right? The, the neighbor that walks out, and if this is you, you need to change. Stop taking pictures of trash barrels out at people's curb for an extra day. Life happens, people. <laughs> Let it go. 
I mean, if that's you, just come to the altar. There's forgiveness, right? You need a problem in your life if your neighbor's trash barrel is it. All right, side note done. Not that, that's never happened to me, by the way. Never happened to me. I get some weed notifications, but those are accurate. I got to deal with that. I understand, right? But Jesus says, hey, listen, you got to love your enemy. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says love, right? Now, if you've been around for a long time in the Christian tradition, you've heard this, maybe you're new to it, but in Greek, there's three words for love, right? You have three words, three philosophical ideas for love in Greek. You have eros, phileo, and agape love, right? So eros love is that like desire, sensual love. And, and it's not always towards a person, it can be towards a thing. So think of like lustful in a sense, right? Um, this type of love really doesn't need to be reciprocated to exist, right? I can kind of go out in the parking lot and lust after some of your cars, right? Some I won't lust after, I'll be honest with you, but some of them I would, you know? I can, I can fall head over heels for a person and that doesn't necessarily get reciprocated back to me. But it's very emotive, right, this kind of love. And then there's phileo love, which is a love that is mutually given, sibling love, or as oftentimes brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, the Eagles, right, those kinds of things. I just thought I'd bring that up for the Eagles fans in the room. And this kind of love is about the bonds of friendship, right? Like we commit to one another. We walk together in life, right? And, and there's no kind of emotion about it. It just is what it is. But there's mutual benefit, right? We need one another. But then there's this agape love. And this agape love is really this idea of one direction, selfless, independent of feeling or attraction or deservedness. It's just love for the sake of love. Dr. King in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies. Now, th there should be a mad rush after today's message for the book to read this one sermon because you've heard a quote from this sermon, but you probably never read the whole sermon. And I do have to say this. I don't know that I agree with all that Dr. King has to say about forgiveness. Now, who am I to disagree with Dr. King? I get that's a problem in my life. I'm working through it. I got it. But some of the things that he says about forgiveness might feel a little different than what were said last week, and that's okay, right? But as you read through it, this, this, this sermon on loving your enemies, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's unbelievable. You'll recognize quotes that are all around the place, but you get to hear them in their context, right? And this is what he says. This is Dr. King, right? He says, how can we like a person who is threatening our children and bombing our homes? How can we like that person? That's impossible. But Jesus recognized that love is greater than like. When Jesus bids us to love our enemies, he is speaking neither of eros nor filio. He is speaking of agape, understanding and creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. Did you hear Dr. King's definition of agape love? Understanding, creative, and redemptive goodwill for all people. I'm gonna say that one more time because that's worth Agape, this kind of love that Jesus calls us to is a love that is filled with understanding, seeks understanding, that is filled with creativity and redemption and goodwill for all people. So Jesus says, that's the way you should exist. Now, why? Why should you exist that way? Why is this incumbent upon you as Jews living in the first century under oppression, under the weight of Rome, under the weight of financial exploitation, why should you do that? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. A more inclusive way of saying that would be so that you may be children of your parent in heaven. But I thought we were all God's children. Well, we are. 
But some of us don't act like it. And all of us don't act like it all the time, right? Because what do children do when they're young? Oftentimes children imitate their parents. Y'all ever heard your kids say something you wish you hadn't heard them said because when they said it, you heard yourself when they said it? Did you follow that one? Like, where did you, it's that old, like when I was growing up, uh, if you're my generation, I'm 46, gonna be 47. Uh, you remember the commercial in the Say No to Drugs campaign, right? And the dad comes in and he opens up the cigar box and there's all this drug paraphernalia. He's like, where did you learn to do this? And the kid says, I learned it from watching you. And the dad's like, you see, does anybody remember that commercial or is it just stuck in my psyche? Some of you are like, yes, yes, yes. Didn't work then, not working now, right? Need a different strategy for the drugs, I got it. But like children imitate their parents. Now in this time period, right, for Jesus's audience, there was no upward mobility in society. Can we just hold that truth? It's not like you woke up in the morning and went, opportunities abound today. I'm gonna go get myself an education. I'm gonna go get myself a really good job. I'm gonna work really hard and I'm going to move upward in society. Didn't happen, okay? If you were born into a family of fisher people, what did you become? A fisher person. Right? That's what you did. If you were born into a family of carpenters, woodworkers, that's what you became. If you were born into a family of day laborers that went out and stood and waited for someone to come by to give you a day's work, that's what you did. So there was this imitation. So that would have been very understood by Jesus's crowd that children do what their parents do. It's just what you do. And so what did Jesus believe about God? What did Jesus believe the nature of God was? How did Jesus believe that God functioned and God's love functioned? He said this, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. I love that Jesus acknowledged there's evil and good in the world. And he says, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, remember you're in an agrarian dry land, so sun and rain are good things. They grow things, okay? So it's not like, well, good and evil falls on everybody. Like, this is all good. <laughs> and I love that Jesus is pointing out this love, this agape love, this divine love, this way God functions has no qualifications. There are certain parts of love that have no qualifications. The sun and the rain are such great metaphors. If it is sunny outside, which it is today here in Northern Colorado, it's a beautiful day, you can go outside. The only way you can hide from that sun is by your own choice. Right? You can put an umbrella up and maybe you're going to go eat outside somewhere. You don't want the sun shining on you, which is true sometimes here in, in NOCO. Right? When it rains, it's going to rain on everything unless you do what? Unless you put yourself away from that, right? And so Jesus could have chosen any metaphor, but he uses this beautiful metaphor because these are realities that people have no control over. You can't earn the sun, you can't earn the rain. Now, there was a belief in the day that you could. So Jesus is even subtly saying that belief is kind of wonky. And then Jesus goes on and he makes it even more clear. He says, listen, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And like you want to get at somebody in Jesus's day, just tell them, well, you're just being like just the tax collectors. He says, if only you, you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is playing on their own biases. And Jesus is talking about a reward to the poorest of the poor. Like, what is Jesus, does Jesus actually believe? Like, if you just go out and if you're nice to people, then all the good stuff's gonna come your way. No. What we tend to think of as reward, we filter that through our Western American way of, of 
consumerism and capitalism and all that stuff. But what we might think of this and how we might better translate it is what benefit is that to you? What character growth do you receive from loving only certain people that are easy to love? Paul kind of shines a little bit of light on this in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter six, verse seven through 10, he says, don't be deceived, God's not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh, but if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life from the spirit. Like what Paul believes here is like, you're going to have to deal with your choices. And so he says, so let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we don't give up. Like there's an acknowledgement that it's hard to do the right thing. It's hard to sow into the right things. So then whenever we have an opportunity, he says, let us work for the good of all. Can we just say that together? Work for the good of all. That is not the message of Christianity in a lot of spaces today. Let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family faith. So Paul recognizes, yeah, we're gonna have a special heart for ours, for our story, but our story has to point us to everybody's story because Paul believes you can't outrun your choices, right? You can't outrun your choices. So when we choose hate, we're sowing hate, we become hateful. When we choose apathy, we sow apathy and we become apathetic. When we choose vengeance, we sow vengeance and we become vengeful. We sow revenge, we become vengeful. And these choices lead to certain destruction of our species. (laughs) This is not a bad day we're talking about. It really isn't. (laughs) I mean, it is massive reality. And so in Dr. King's sermon, Love Your Enemies, we find that famous line about darkness not being able to drive out darkness. This is the quote in its whole context. He says, returning hate for hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate, violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. He says the chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken. He said it must be broken. And so if you wanna celebrate Martin Luther King Day and you wanna celebrate wars that are going on in this world, you need to make a choice because you cannot do both with integrity. You are living a split-souled life. You will have to renounce some values that get handed to you to take on the values of Christianity that Dr. King so eloquently displayed and gave his life for but these two don't exist. He says they will plunge us into the darkness, to the dark abyss of annihilation. And violence and hatred continue to be an evolutionary existential crisis in our world. The movie Oppenheimer that just came out displays this reality beautifully. Hate is not a chain reaction, it is a nuclear reaction. And we will destroy ourselves. We will become self-fulfilling prophets of a revelation, like vision of annihilation of two-thirds, three-quarters, 90% of the planet if we cannot become people who recognize that hate is where it begins. And it starts at the everyday normal life space of loving your enemy. So back to Jesus. Jesus concludes this this little teaching segment with this really powerful word, and you've heard this before, many of you, but remember what he's talking about. He's talking about love. 
loving enemies, praying for enemies. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I grew up being taught that this meant I wasn't allowed to smoke. I wasn't allowed to drink. I wasn't allowed to have sex before I was married. I wasn't allowed to do certain things because I have to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And that is the biggest cop-out for following Jesus. That is easy compared to this nonsense that Jesus gives us. It is easy to follow a list of moral rules that shift over time and season. But what Jesus gives us is a timeless way of being that will actually create a healing and therapeutic way of inhabiting this earth forever. But we reduce it to moralism so that we can control people and we create concepts of hell to control people even more. And we misquote passages like this so that we can justify our own superiority, not righteousness by any standard of the biblical word, but just superiority and arrogance. It's not a statement about moral choices. It's about offering a love that is perfect to those that we don't get to pick and choose, that we don't really want to give it to, but we do it because that's what it means to follow Jesus. So don't miss this. A vibrant and vital love chooses hospitality towards agape love over hostility towards enemies. In other words, we choose to embrace this idea of agape love and let it transform us so that we can then start to love as God loves or as real love functions what Jesus is teaching. So a vibrant and vital love is hospitable. It welcomes, it opens, it, it creates a big table and it says, come on in, come on in. I need to understand the pain. I need to be creative, I need to be redemptive. That's the way agape works. And it seeks to transform enemies into friends. And so in our everyday normal lives, there's some things that we can be mindful of and we can move into. So a hospitable heart towards agape is mindful of the two wolves that live inside every one of us. Every person, you, your enemies, we all have two wolves that live inside of us. Native American tale, it's beautiful, says that there's two wolves that live inside each of us. There's an angry and aggressive and jealous wolf. And there's a compassionate and generous loving one. And whichever one I feed will grow. Now, here's the beauty. We're not supposed to neglect the angry, aggressive, jealous, hateful wolf. Because if we try to kill it, what are we doing? We're actually feeding it. If we do battle with that wolf, we're actually causing it to grow. Hating the wolf will just suck the strength out of us and give it to that wolf. So what do we do? We calmly pay attention to the angry wolf. <laughs> we recognize, I, I actually do hate you. Wow, that's there. Okay, I gotta honor it, I gotta recognize it. I gotta recognize, it. I, I, I gotta let go that I may have the answer for that. It just is what it is, but I don't have to embrace it. I don't have to live it. I just have to know that it's there. And now I can do what? I can start feeding the compassionate wolf. I can start learning, growing, gaining understanding. And eventually that wolf will lie down next to us no longer as an enemy, but just as a part of who we are. And we feed the compassionate wolf, we nourish it, the tale tells us. And then it has the strength to lead us and we follow it. And it shows us the way through all kinds of life experiences, good and bad. Jungian psychology calls this the shadow and light self. If you spend all your life trying to pretend you don't have a shadow self, ignore it, it will overwhelm you. You know what our Christian tradition calls it? Flesh versus the spirit. Flesh versus the spirit. Paul talks about that in Galatians. That's how, it's, it's the same concept, the same principle. So part of feeding that compassionate wolf or sowing into the spirit is recognizing that our enemies cannot and should not be reduced to only evil. 
as if they are just one monotone existence. We cannot reduce our enemies to their worst actions. We don't deserve that. We are all this mixture. And so we give agape to our enemies first by recognizing, as Dr. King said, they are not totally bad and they are not beyond the reach of God's redemptive love. Second thing a hospitable heart does in our everyday normal lives, it knows, it knows somewhere in the recesses of our deepest being that agape will vanquish our enemies that agape will eviscerate our enemies, that agape destroys enemies by destroying the enmity and is the only hope of transforming an enemy into a friend. Hate is destructive in its very nature, in its very essence, it moves us towards destruction, not just of the enemy, but of ourselves, but agape is creative and redemptive. Abraham Lincoln was known for bringing people that did not like him into his cabinet. Have you ever heard of the book, Team of Rivals? I've got to admit, I have not read the whole book, but I hear it's fantastic. But it tells the story of how Abraham Lincoln would bring rivals into the cabinet. He brought some very in particular because he knew they were the best people. And so he would bring his personal and political enemies and they would become friends. And one of them was this guy named Edmund Stanton. And Stanton did not like Lincoln at all. (laughs) Dr. King talks about this in his sermon. Like he called this guy all kinds of names. Like Stanton called Lincoln a gorilla, an imbecile. He was a disgrace. But when Lincoln won, he only cared that Stanton was a brilliant leader. He was, and in one of like his most brilliant acts as president, of his brilliant presidency, he made him secretary of war. So he brings him into the cabinet and Lincoln would work closer with Stanton than just about any other cabinet member. And Stanton came to love him. Soon after Lincoln would be assassinated. And as Stanton stood next to Lincoln's dead body, this man that he once hated, he said, this is one of the greatest men who ever lived and he now belongs to the ages. If Lincoln would have held hate, it would have sent both of those men to their graves filled with hate as bitter enemies. But through the power of love, Lincoln vanquished an enemy and created a friend. It actually can happen. Why? Because agape is creative and it is redemptive and it's full of goodwill. And finally, in our everyday normal lives, a hospitable heart, one that embraces agape, knows that agape is the most sustainable and resilient force on earth. Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have said this, right? Great military genius looking back over his years He's, 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 he's reported to have said this, that Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have built great empires, but upon what did they demand? Upon what did they depend? They depended on force. They depended on violence. They depended on fear. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions would die for him, not kill for him, but die for him. And Dr. King said this about this quote. He said, who can doubt the veracity of these words? The great military leaders of the past have gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love is still growing. Dr. King said it started with a small group of dedicated men who through the inspiration of their Lord were able to shake the hinges from the gates of the Roman empire and carry the gospel into all the world. And that's what following Jesus is about. 
And it is not easy and it is not popular because we naturally want to stay in our stories. But Jesus calls us into the story. And it's not a story about right or wrong. It's a story about love and unity and understanding and creativity and redemption and forgiveness. And that's what I want my life to count for. I don't know about you. Because if I can make my life count for that, and if a few of us can be leavened in a world filled with hate, we can sustain the whole thing and we can actually find out that the hypothesis is true, that agape is the practical path to peace on earth. It may feel like it's not, but it is. So we're gonna have communion together here this morning and we're gonna have a new song we're gonna sing called Bigger Table that speaks to this idea that love sets a big table for everyone. And as we have communion today, I just wanna encourage you to ask yourself this question in the recesses of your soul, what is God inviting you into today? What is the spirit, what is love inviting you to? Perhaps it's to consider a cliff that your hatred is leading you towards of certain destruction of yourself and others. Maybe it's to read the sermon, Loving Your Enemies by Dr. Martin Luther King, who talks about this so way more eloquently than I could. Or maybe you really wanna amp it up and go to the master's degree level, PhD level of love, and you say, you know what? This week I will commit to practically demonstrating agape love to one enemy, that I will figure it out, and I will practically do that. But I mean, that's master's degree stuff. We can start with reading, we can start with considering, I get that. So I wanna invite you to stand. As a reminder this morning, our communion experience is for everyone because the gospel is a message about everyone, that we are all equally loved, that the rain falls on each and every one of us regardless of what we believe, and the sun shines on us regardless of what we do. And these elements at their very heart remind us of that great love. So you are welcome to the table today. And these are symbols that remind us that there was a man who walked this earth who believed it so much that he gave his very life for us and that life has transformed the world and it continues as we live and move and have our being in that love so the body of christ broken for you and all eight billion people on the planet and the blood of christ shed for you and all eight billion people on this planet so come and take these elements and allow god to move in your heart as we sing this new song we're going to have a special time of prayer for the conflicts that are happening around our world following that and then sing one more song about the presence of God being right with us and among us. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you.